Part One of The Club of Queer Trades. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. The Club of Queer Trades by G. K. Chesterton. Read for LibriVox.org by David Barnes. One. The Tremendous Adventures of Major Brown. Rabelais, or his wild illustrator Gustave Doré, must have had something to do with the designing of the things called flats in England and America. There is something entirely gargantuan in the idea of economizing space by piling houses on top of each other, front doors and all, and in the chaos and complexity of these perpendicular streets anything may dwell or happen and it is in one of them, I believe, that the inquirer may find the offices of the Club of Queer Trades. It may be thought at the first glance that the name would attract and startle the passer-by, but nothing attracts or startles in these dim, immense hives. The passer-by is only looking for his own melancholy destination, the Montenegro Shipping Agency or the London office of the Rutland Sentinel, and passes through the twilight passages as one passes through the twilight corridors of a dream. If the thugs set up a stranger's assassination company in one of the great buildings in Norfolk Street, and sent in a mild man in spectacles to answer enquiries, no enquiries would be made, and the club of queer trades reigns in a great edifice hidden like a fossil, in a mighty cliff of fossils. The nature of this society, such as we afterwards discovered it to be, is soon and simply told. It is an eccentric and bohemian club, of which the absolute condition of membership lies in this, that the candidate must have invented the method by which he earns his living. It must be an entirely new trade. The exact definition of this requirement is given in the two principal rules. First, it must not be a mere application or variation of an existing trade. Thus, for instance, the club would not admit an insurance agent, simply because, instead of insuring men's furniture against being burnt in a fire, he insured, let us say, their trousers against being torn by a mad dog. The principal as Sir Bradcock Burnaby Bradcock, in the extraordinarily eloquent and soaring speech to the club on the occasion of the question being raised in the Stormby-Smith affair, said wittily and keenly, is the same. Secondly, the trade must be a genuine commercial source of income, the support of its inventor. Thus the club would not receive a man simply because he chose to pass his days collecting broken sardine tins, unless he could derive a roaring trade in them. Professor Chick made that quite clear. And when one remembers what Professor Chick's own new trade was, one doesn't know whether to laugh or cry. The discovery of this strange society was a curiously refreshing thing, to realise that there were ten new trades in the world was like looking at the first ship or the first plough. It made a man feel what he should feel, that he was still in the childhood of the world. 
that I should have come at last upon so singular a body was, I may say without vanity, not altogether singular, for I have a mania for belonging to as many societies as possible. I may be said to collect clubs, and I have accumulated a vast and fantastic variety of specimens ever since, in my audacious youth, I collected the Athenaeum. At some future day, perhaps, I may tell tales of some of the other bodies to which I have belonged. I will recount the doings of the Dead Man's Shoes Society, that superficially immoral but darkly justifiable communion. I will explain the curious origin of the Cat and Christian, the name of which has been so shamefully misinterpreted, and the world shall know at last why the Institute of Typewriters coalesced with the Red Tulip League. Of the ten teacups, of course, I dare not say a word. The first of my revelations, at any rate, shall be concerned with the Club of Queer Trades, which, as I have said, was one of this class, one that I was almost bound to come across sooner or later, because of my singular hobby. The wild youth of the metropolis call me facetiously the King of Clubs, they also call me the cherub, an allusion to the roseate and youthful appearance I have presented in my declining years. I only hope the spirits in the better world have as good dinners as I have. But the finding of the club of queer trades has one very curious thing about it. The most curious thing about it is that it was not discovered by me. It was discovered by my friend Basil Grant, a star-gazer, a mystic, and a man who scarcely stirred out of his attic. Very few people know anything of Basil, not because he was in the least unsociable, for if a man out of the street had walked into his room he would have kept him talking till morning. Few people knew him because, like all poets, he could do without them. He welcomed a human face as he might welcome a sudden blend of colour in a sunset but he no more felt the need of going out to parties than he felt the need of altering the sunset clouds. He lived in a queer and comfortable garret in the roofs of Lambeth. He was surrounded by a chaos of things that were in odd contrast to the slums around him, old fantastic books, swords, armour, the whole dust-hole of romanticism. But his face, amid all these quixotic relics, appeared curiously keen and modern, a powerful, legal face, and no one but I knew who he was. Long ago as it is, everyone remembers the terrible and grotesque scene that occurred in when one of the most acute and forcible of the English judges suddenly went mad on the bench. I had my own view of that occurrence but about the facts themselves there is no question at all. For some months, indeed for some years, people had detected something curious in the judge's conduct. He seemed to have lost interest in the law, in which he had been beyond expression brilliant and terrible as a K.C., and to be occupied in giving personal and moral advice to the people concerned. He talked more like a priest or a doctor, and a very outspoken one at that, the first thrill was probably given when he said to a man who had attempted a crime of passion, I sentence you to three years' imprisonment under the firm and solemn and God-given conviction that what you require is three months at the seaside. 
he accused criminals from the bench not so much of their obvious legal crimes, but of things that had never been heard of in a court of justice. Monstrous egoism, lack of humour, and morbidity deliberately encouraged. Things came to a head in that celebrated diamond case in which the Prime Minister himself, that brilliant patrician, had to come forward, gracefully and reluctantly, to give evidence against his valet. After the detailed life of the household had been thoroughly exhibited, the judge requested the Premier again to step forward, which he did with quiet dignity. The judge then said, in a sudden grating voice, "'Get a new soul. That thing's not fit for a dog. Get a new soul.' All this, of course, in the eyes of the sagacious, was premonitory of that melancholy and farcical day when his wits actually deserted him in open court. It was a libel case between two very eminent and powerful financiers, against both of whom charges of considerable defalcation were brought. The case was long and complex. The advocates were long and eloquent. But at last, after weeks of work and rhetoric, the time came for the great judge to give a summing up, and one of his celebrated masterpieces of lucidity and pulverizing logic was eagerly looked for. He had spoken very little during the prolonged affair, and he looked sad and lowering at the end of it. He was silent for a few moments, and then burst into a stentorian song. His remarks, as reported, were as follows. Oh, rowty outy tiddly outy tiddly outy tiddly outy highty ity tiddly ity tiddly ity ow. He then retired from public life and took the garret in Lambeth. I was sitting there one evening about six o'clock over a glass of that gorgeous burgundy which he kept behind a pile of black letter folios. He was striding about the room, fingering after a habit of his one of the great swords in his collection. The red glare of the strong fire struck his square features and his fierce grey hair. His blue eyes were even unusually full of dreams, and he had opened his mouth to speak dreamily, when the door was flung open, and a pale fiery man with red hair and a huge furred overcoat swung himself panting into the room. "'Sorry to bother you, Basil,' he gasped. "'I took a liberty, made an appointment here for a man, a client. "'In five minutes, I beg your pardon, sir.' "'And he gave me a bow of apology. "'Basil smiled at me. "'You didn't know,' he said, "'that I had a practical brother. "'This is Rupert Grant, Esquire, "'who can and does all there is to be done. "'Just as I was a failure at one thing, "'he is a success at everything.' I remember him as a journalist, a house-agent, a naturalist, an inventor, a publisher, a schoolmaster, a—, a "'What are you now, Rupert?' "'I am, and have been for some time,' said Rupert, with some dignity, "'a private detective. And there's my client.' A loud rap at the door had cut him short, and on permission being given, the door was thrown sharply open, and a stout, dapper man walked swiftly into the room, set his silk hat with a clap on the table, and said, "'Good evening, gentlemen,' with a stress on the last syllable, which somehow marked him out as a martinet, military, literary, and social. He had a large head, streaked with black and grey, and an abrupt black moustache which gave him a look of fierceness which was contradicted by his sad sea-blue eyes. Basil immediately said to me, 
"'Let us come into the next room, Gully,' and was moving towards the door. But the stranger said, "'Not at all. Friends remain. Assistance, possibly.' The moment I heard him speak, I remembered who he was. A certain Major Brown I had met years before in Basil's society. I had forgotten altogether the black dandified figure and the large solemn head, but I remembered the peculiar speech, which consisted of only saying about a quarter of each sentence, and that sharply, like the crack of a gun. I do not know, it may have come from giving orders to troops. Major Brown was a V.C., and an able and distinguished soldier, but he was anything but a warlike person. Like many among the iron men who recovered British India, he was a man with the natural beliefs and tastes of an old maid. In his dress he was dapper, and yet demure. In his habits he was precise to the point of the exact adjustment of a teacup. One enthusiasm he had, which was of the nature of a religion, the cultivation of pansies. And when he talked about his collection, his blue eyes glittered like a child's at a new toy, the eyes that had remained untroubled when the troops were roaring victory around Roberts at Kandahar. "'Well, Major,' said Rupert Grant, with a loud heartiness, flinging himself into a chair, "'what is the matter with you?' "'Yellow pansies, coal cellar, P.G. Northover,' said the Major, with righteous indignation. We glanced at each other with inquisitiveness. Basil, who had his eyes shut in his abstracted way, said simply, "'I beg your pardon?' "'Fact is, street, you know, man, pansies, on wall.' death to me, something preposterous. We shook our heads gently, bit by bit, and mainly by the seemingly sleepy assistance of Basil Grant, we pieced together the Major's fragmentary but excited narration. It would be infamous to submit the reader to what we endured, therefore I will tell the story of Major Brown in my own words. But the reader must imagine the scene. The eyes of Basil closed as in a trance after his habit, and the eyes of Rupert and myself getting rounder and rounder as we listened to one of the most astounding stories in the world, from the lips of the little man in black, sitting bolt upright in his chair and talking like a telegram. Major Brown was, as I have said, a successful soldier, but by no means an enthusiastic one. So far from regretting his retirement on half-pay, it was with delight that he took a small, neat villa, very like a doll's house, and devoted the rest of his life to pansies and weak tea. The thought that battles were over when he had once hung up his sword in the little front hall, along with two patent stewpots and a bad water-colour, and betaken himself instead to wielding the rake in his little sunlit garden, was to him like having come into a harbour in heaven. He was Dutch-like and precise in his taste in gardening, and had perhaps some tendency to drill his flowers like soldiers. He was one of those men who are capable of putting four umbrellas in the stand rather than three, so that two may lean one way and two another. He saw life like a pattern in a freehand drawing-book, and assuredly he would not have believed or even understood any one who had told him that within a few yards of his brick paradise he was destined to be caught in a whirlpool of incredible adventure, such as he had never seen or dreamed of in the horrible jungle or the heat of battle. One certain bright and windy afternoon, the Major, 
attired in his usual faultless manner, had set out for his usual constitutional. In crossing from one great residential thoroughfare to another, he happened to pass along one of those aimless-looking lanes, which lie along the back garden walls of a row of mansions, and which in their empty and discoloured appearance give one an odd sensation, as of being behind the scenes of a theatre. But mean and sulky as the scene might be in the eyes of most of us, it was not altogether so in the majors, for along the coarse gravel footway was coming a thing which was to him what the passing of a religious procession is to a devout person. A large, heavy man, with fish-blue eyes and a ring of irradiating red beard, was pushing before him a barrow, which was ablaze with incomparable flowers. There were splendid specimens of almost every order, but the Major's own favourite pansies predominated. The Major stopped and fell into conversation, and then into bargaining. He treated the man after the manner of collectors and other madmen, that is to say, he carefully— and with a sort of anguish selected the best roots from the less excellent, praised some, disparaged others, made a subtle scale ranging from a thrilling worth and rarity to a degraded insignificance, and then bought them all. The man was just pushing off his barrow when he stopped and came close to the major. "'I'll tell you what, sir,' he said. "'If you're interested in them things, you just get on that wall.' "'On the wall?' cried the scandalised Major, whose conventional soul quailed within him at the thought of such fantastic trespass. "'Finest show of pansies in England in that there garden, sir,' hissed the tempter. "'I'll help you up, sir.' How it happened no one will ever know, but that positive enthusiasm of the Major's life triumphed over all its negative traditions, and with an easy leap and swing that showed that he was in no need of physical assistance, he stood on the wall at the end of the strange garden. The second after, the flapping of the frock-coat at his knees made him feel inexpressibly a fool, but the next instant all such trifling sentiments were swallowed up by the most appalling shock of surprise the old soldier had ever felt in all his bold and wandering existence. His eyes fell upon the garden, and there, across a large bed in the centre of the lawn, was a vast pattern of pansies. They were splendid flowers, but for once it was not their horticultural aspects that Major Brown beheld, for the pansies were arranged in gigantic capital letters, so as to form the sentence, DEATH TO MAJOR BROWN. A kindly-looking old man, with white whiskers, was watering them. Brown looked sharply back at the road behind him. The man with the barrow had suddenly vanished. Then he looked again at the lawn with its incredible inscription. Another man might have thought that he had gone mad, but Brown did not. When romantic ladies gushed over his V.C. and his military exploits, he sometimes felt himself to be a painfully prosaic person, but by the same token he knew he was incurably sane. Another man, again, might have thought himself a victim of a passing practical joke, but Brown could not easily believe this. He knew from his own quaint learning that the garden arrangement was an elaborate and expensive one. He thought it extravagantly improbable that anyone would pour out money like water for a joke against him. 
having no explanation whatever to offer, he admitted the fact to himself, like a clear-headed man, and waited, as he would have done in the presence of a man with six legs. At this moment the stout old man with white whiskers looked up, and the watering can fell from his hand, shooting a swirl of water down the gravel path. "'Who on earth are you?' he gasped, trembling violently. "'I am Major Brown,' said that individual, who was always cool in the hour of action. The old man gaped helplessly like some monstrous fish. At last he stammered wildly, "'Come down, come down here.' "'At your service,' said the Major, and alighted at a bound on the grass beside him, without disarranging his silk hat. The old man turned his broad back and set off at a sort of waddling run towards the house, followed with swift steps by the major. His guide led him through the back passages of a gloomy but gorgeously appointed house until they reached the door of the front room. Then the old man turned with a face of apoplectic terror dimly showing in the twilight. "'For heaven's sake,' he said, "'don't mention jackals.' Then he threw open the door, releasing a burst of red lamplight, and ran downstairs with a clatter. The Major stepped into a rich, glowing room, full of red copper and peacock and purple hangings, hat in hand. He had the finest manners in the world, and, though mystified, was not in the least embarrassed to see that the only occupant was a lady, sitting by the window, looking out. "'Madam,' he said, bowing simply, I am Major Brown. Sit down, said the lady, but she did not turn her head. She was a graceful, green-clad figure, with fiery red hair and a flavour of Bedford Park. You have come, I suppose, she said mournfully, to tax me about the hateful title deeds. I have come, madam, he said, to know what is the matter, to know why my name is written across your garden not amicably either. He spoke grimly, for the thing had hit him. It is impossible to describe the effect produced on the mind by that quiet and sunny garden scene, the frame for a stunning and brutal personality. The evening air was still, and the grass was golden in the place where the little flowers he studied cried to heaven for his blood. "'You must know I must not turn round,' said the lady. Every afternoon till the stroke of six I must keep my face turned to the street. Some queer and unusual inspiration made the prosaic soldier resolute to accept these outrageous riddles without surprise. It is almost six, he said, and even as he spoke the barbaric copper clock upon the wall clanged the first stroke of the hour. At the sixth, the lady sprang up and turned on the major one of the queerest and yet most attractive faces he had ever seen in his life, open and yet tantalizing, the face of an elf. "'That makes the third year I have waited,' she cried. "'This is an anniversary. The waiting almost makes one wish the frightful thing would happen once and for all.' And even as she spoke, a sudden rending cry broke the stillness. From low down on the pavement of the dim street—it was already twilight—a voice cried out with a raucous and merciless distinctness, "'Major Brown! Major Brown! Where does the jackal dwell?' 
Brown was decisive and silent in action. He strode to the front door and looked out. There was no sign of life in the blue gloaming of the street, where one or two lamps were beginning to light their lemon sparks. On returning, he found the lady in green trembling. "'It is the end,' she cried with shaking lips. "'It may be death for both of us. Whenever—' But even as she spoke, her speech was cloven by another hoarse proclamation from the dark street, again horribly articulate. "'Major Brown! Major Brown! How did the jackal die?' Brown dashed out of the door and down the steps, but again he was frustrated. There was no figure in sight, and the street was far too long and empty for the shouter to have run away. Even the rational major was a little shaken as he returned in a certain time to the drawing-room. Scarcely had he done so than the terrific voice came, "'Major Brown! Major Brown! Where did—' Brown was in the street almost at a bound, and he was in time, in time to see something which at first glance froze the blood. The cries appeared to come from a decapitated head resting on the pavement." The next moment the pale major understood. It was the head of a man thrust through the coal-hole in the street. The next moment again it had vanished, and Major Brown turned to the lady. "'Where's your coal-cellar?' he said, and stepped out into the passage. She looked at him with wild grey eyes. "'You will not go down,' she cried, "'alone, into the dark hole with that beast!' "'Is this the way?' replied Brown, and descended the kitchen stairs, three at a time. He flung open the door of a black cavity and stepped in, feeling in his pocket for matches. As his right hand was thus occupied, a pair of great slimy hands came out of the darkness, hands clearly belonging to a man of gigantic stature, and seized him by the back of the head. They forced him down, down in the suffocating darkness, a brutal image of destiny. But the major's head, though upside down, was perfectly clear and intellectual. He gave quietly under the pressure until he had slid down almost to his hands and knees. Then finding the knees of the invisible monster within a foot of him, he simply put out one of his long, bony and skilful hands, and gripping the leg by a muscle, pulled it off the ground and laid the huge living man with a crash along the floor. He strove to rise, but Brown was on top like a cat. They rolled over and over. Big as the man was, he had evidently now no desire but to escape. He made sprawls hither and thither to get past the Major to the door, but that tenacious person had him hard by the coat-collar and hung with the other hand to a beam. At length there came a strain in holding back this human bull a strain under which Brown expected his hand to rend and part from the arm. But something else rent and parted, and the dim fat figure of the giant vanished out of the cellar, leaving the torn coat in the Major's hand, the only fruit of his adventure and the only clue to the mystery. For when he went up and out at the front door, the lady, the rich hangings, and the whole equipment of the house had disappeared, it had only bare boards and whitewashed walls. "'The lady was in the conspiracy, of course,' said Rupert, nodding. Major Brown turned brick-red. "'I beg your pardon,' he said. "'I think not.' Rupert raised his eyebrows and looked at him for a moment, but said nothing. When next he spoke, he asked, 
Was there anything in the pockets of the coat? There was sevenpence halfpenny in coppers, and a threepenny bit, said the Major carefully. There was a cigarette holder, a piece of string, and this letter. And he laid it on the table. It ran as follows. Dear Mr. Plover, I am annoyed to hear that some delay has occurred in the arrangements re Major Brown. Please see that he is attacked as per arrangements to-morrow. The coal-seller, of course. Yours faithfully, P. G. Northover. Rupert Grant was leaning forward, listening, with hawk-like eyes. He cut in. Is it dated from anywhere? No. Oh, yes, replied Brown, glancing upon the paper. Fourteen Tanners Court, North... Rupert sprang up and struck his hands together. Then why are we hanging here? Let's get along. Basil, lend me your revolver. Basil was staring into the embers like a man in a trance, and it was some time before he answered, "'I don't think you'll need it.' "'Perhaps not,' said Rupert, getting his fur coat. "'One never knows. But going down a dark court to see criminals—' "'Do you think they are criminals?' asked his brother. Rupert laughed stoutly. "'Giving orders to a subordinate to strangle a harmless stranger in a coal-cellar may strike you as a very blameless experiment, but—' "'Do you think they wanted to strangle the Major?' asked Basil, in the same distant but monotonous voice. "'My dear fellow, you've been asleep. Look at the letter.' "'I am looking at the letter,' said the mad judge calmly, though, as a matter of fact, he was looking at the fire— I don't think it's the sort of letter one criminal would write to another. My dear boy, you are glorious, cried Rupert, turning round with laughter in his blue bright eyes. Your methods amaze me. Why, there is the letter. It is written, and it does give orders for a crime. You might as well say that Nelson's column was not at all the sort of thing that was likely to be set up in Trafalgar Square. Basil Grant shook all over with a sort of silent laughter, but did not otherwise move. "'That's rather good,' he said. "'But, of course, logic like that's not what is really wanted. It's a question of spiritual atmosphere. It's not a criminal letter.' "'It is. It's a matter of fact,' cried the other, in an agony of reasonableness. "'Facts,' murmured Basil like one mentioning some strange far-off animals how facts obscure the truth i may be silly in fact i'm off my head but i never could believe in that man uh, what's his name in those capital stories sherlock holmes every detail points to something certainly but generally to the wrong thing facts point in all directions it seems to me like the thousands of twigs on a tree it's only the life of the tree that has unity and goes up only the green blood that springs like a fountain at the stars but what the deuce else can the letter be but criminal we have eternity to stretch our legs in replied the mystic it can be an infinity of things I haven't seen any of them. I've only seen the letter. I look at that and say it's not criminal. Then what's the origin of it? I haven't the vaguest idea. Then why don't you accept the ordinary explanation? Basil continued for a little to glare at the coals, and seemed collecting his thoughts in a humble and even painful way. Then he said, 
Suppose you went out into the moonlight. Suppose you passed through silent, silvery streets and squares until you came into an open and deserted space, set with a few monuments, and you beheld one dressed as a ballet girl dancing in the argent glimmer, and suppose you looked and saw it was a man disguised, and suppose you looked again and saw it was Lord Kitchener, what would you think? He paused a moment and went on. You could not adopt the ordinary explanation. The ordinary explanation of putting on singular clothes is that you look nice in them. You would not think that Lord Kitchener dressed up like a ballet girl out of ordinary personal vanity. You would think it much more likely that he inherited a dancing madness from a great-grandmother, or had been hypnotized at a seance, or threatened by a secret society with death if he refused the ordeal. With Baden-Powell, say, it might be a bet, but not with Kitchener. I should know all that, because in my public days I knew him quite well. So I know that letter quite well, and criminals quite well. It's not a criminal's letter. It's all atmospheres. And he closed his eyes and passed his hand over his forehead. Rupert and the Major were regarding him with a mixture of respect and pity. The former said, "'Well, I'm going anyhow, and shall continue to think, until your spiritual mystery turns up, that a man who sends a note recommending a crime, that is, actually a crime, that is actually carried out, at least tentatively, is in all probability a little casual in his moral tastes. Can I have that revolver?' Certainly, said Basil, getting up, but I'm coming with you. And he flung an old cape or cloak around him, and took a sword-stick from the corner. You, said Rupert, with some surprise, you scarcely ever leave your hole to look at anything on the face of the earth. Basil fitted on a formidable old white hat. I scarcely ever, he said, with an unconscious and colossal arrogance, hear of anything on the face of the earth that I do not understand at once without going to see it and he led the way out into the purple night. We four swung along the flaring Lambeth streets, across Westminster Bridge, and along the embankment in the direction of that part of Fleet Street which contained Tanner's Court. The erect black figure of Major Brown, seen from behind, was a quaint contrast to the hound-like stoop and flapping mantle of young Rupert Grant, who adopted, with childlike delight, all the dramatic poses of the detective of fiction. The finest among his fine qualities was his boyish appetite for the colour and poetry of London. Basil, who walked behind, with his face turned blindly to the stars, had the look of a somnambulist. Rupert paused at the corner of Tanner's court with a quiver of delight at danger, and gripped Basil's revolver in his greatcoat pocket. "'Shall we go in now?' he asked. Uh, "'Not get police?' asked Major, glancing sharply up and down the street. "'I'm not sure,' answered Rupert, knitting his brows. "'Of course it's quite clear the thing's all crooked. "'But there are three of us, and—' "'I shouldn't get the police,' said Basil, in a queer voice. "'Rupert glanced at him and stared hard. "'Basil,' he said, "'you're trembling. "'What's the matter? "'Are you afraid?' "'Cold, perhaps,' said the Major, eyeing him. "'There was no doubt that he was shaking.' At last, after a few moments' scrutiny, Rupert broke into a curse. 
"'You're laughing,' he cried. "'I know that confounded, silent, shaky laugh of yours. "'What the deuce is the amusement, Basil? "'Here we are, all three of us, within a yard of a den of ruffians.' "'But I shouldn't call the police,' said Basil. "'We four heroes are quite equal to a host.' "'And he continued to quake with his mysterious mirth.' Rupert turned with impatience and strode swiftly down the court, the rest of us following. When he reached the door of number 14, he turned abruptly, the revolver glittering in his hand. "'Stand close,' he said, in the voice of a commander. "'The scoundrel may be attempting an escape at this moment. We must fling open the door and rush in.' The four of us cowered instantly under the archway, rigid, except for the old judge and his convulsion of merriment. "'Now!' hissed Rupert Grant, turning his pale face and burning eyes suddenly over his shoulder. "'When I say four, follow me with a rush. If I say hold him, pin the fellows down, whoever they are. If I say stop, stop. I shall say that if there are more than three. If they attack us, I shall empty my revolver on them. Basil, have your sword-stick ready. Now, one, two three four with the sound of the word the door burst open and we all fell into the room like an invasion only to stop dead the room which was an ordinary and neatly appointed office appeared at the first glance to be empty but on the second and more careful glance we saw seated behind a very large desk with pigeonholes and drawers of bewildering multiplicity a small man with a black waxed moustache, and the air of a very average clerk, writing hard. He looked up as we came to a standstill. "'Did you knock?' he asked pleasantly. "'I'm sorry if I did not hear. Uh, what can I do for you?' There was a doubtful pause, and then, by general consent, the Major himself, the victim of the outrage, stepped forward. The letter was in his hand and he looked unusually grim. "'Is your name P. G. Northover?' he asked. "'That is my name,' replied the other, smiling. "'I think,' said the Major, with an increase in the dark glow of his face, "'that this letter was written by you.' And with a loud clap he struck open the letter on the desk with his clenched fist. The man called Northover looked at it with unaffected interest and merely nodded. "'Well, sir,' said the Major, breathing hard. What about that? What about it, precisely, said the man with the moustache. I am Major Brown, said the gentleman sternly. Northover bowed. Pleased to meet you, sir. Uh, what have you to say to me? Say, cried the Major, loosing a sudden tempest. Why, I want this confounded thing settled. I want... "'Certainly, sir,' said Northover, jumping up with a slight elevation of his eyebrows. "'Will you take a chair for a moment?' And he pressed an electric bell just above him, which thrilled and tinkled in a room beyond. The Major put his hand on the back of the chair offered him, but stood chafing and beating the floor with his polished boot. The next moment an inner glass door was opened, and a fair, weedy young man in a frock-coat entered from within. Uh, "'Mr. Hopson,' said Northover, "'this is Major Brown. Uh, "'Will you please finish that thing for him I gave you this morning and bring it in?' Uh, "'Yes, sir,' said Mr. Hopson, and vanished like lightning. 
"'You will excuse me, gentlemen,' said the egregious Northover, with his radiant smile. "'If I continue to work until Mr. Hopson is ready, I have some books that must be cleared up before I get away on my holiday to-morrow. But we all like a whiff of the country, don't we? Ha-ha!' <laughs> the criminal took up his pen with a childlike laugh, and a silence ensued. A placid and busy silence on the part of Mr. P. G. Northover— a raging silence on the part of everybody else. At length, the scratching of Northover's pen in the stillness was mingled by a knock at the door, almost simultaneous with the turning of the handle, and Mr. Hopson came in again with the same silent rapidity, placed a paper before his principal, and disappeared again. The man at the desk pulled and twisted his spiky moustache for a few moments as he ran his eye up and down the paper presented to him. He took up his pen with a slight instantaneous frown and altered something, muttering, Careless! And then he read it again with the same impenetrable reflectiveness and finally handed it to the frantic Brown, whose hand was beating the devil's tattoo on the back of the chair. "'I think you'll find that all right, Major,' he said briefly. The Major looked at it. Whether he found it all right or not will appear later, but he found it like this. Major Brown to P. G. Northover. Pounds, shillings, pence. January 1st, to account rendered, 560 pounds. May 9th, to potting and embedding 200 pansies. 200 pounds.' to cost of trolley with flowers, £150, to hiring of man with trolley, £50, to hire of house and garden for one day, £100, to furnishing of room in peacock curtains, copper ornaments, etc., £300, to salary of Miss Jameson, £100, to salary of Mr. Plover, £100, total, £1,460. A remittance will oblige. "'What?' said Brown, after a dead pause, and with eyes that seemed slowly rising out of his head. "'What in heaven's name is this?' "'What is it?' repeated Northover, cocking his eyebrow with amusement. "'It's your account, of course.' "'My account?' The Major's ideas appeared to be in a vague stampede. "'My account!' count and what have i got to do with it well said northover laughing outright naturally i prefer you to pay it the major's hand was still resting on the back of the chair as the words came he scarcely stirred otherwise but he lifted the chair bodily into the air with one hand and hurled it at northover's head the legs crashed against the desk so that northover only got a blow on the elbow as he sprang up with clenched fists only to be seized by the united rush of the rest of us the chair had fallen clattering on the empty floor let me go you scamps he shouted let me stand still cried rupert authoritatively major brown's action is excusable the abominable crime you have attempted "'A customer has a perfect right,' said Northover hotly, "'to question an alleged overcharge, but confound it all not to throw furniture.' 
"'What in God's name do you mean by your customers and overcharges?' shrieked Major Brown, whose keen feminine nature, steady in pain or danger, became almost hysterical in the presence of a long and exasperating mystery. "'Who are you? I have never seen you or your insolent tomfool bills. I know one of your cursed brutes tried to choke me.' "'Mad!' said Northover, gazing blankly all around. "'All of them mad! I didn't know they travelled in quartets.' "'Enough of this prevarication,' said Rupert. "'Your crimes are discovered. A policeman is stationed at the corner of the court. Though only a private detective myself, I will take the responsibility of telling you that anything you say—' "'Mad!' repeated Northover with a weary air and at this moment, for the first time, there struck in among them the strange, sleepy voice of Basil Grant. "'Major Brown,' he said, "'may I ask you a question?' The Major turned his head with an increased bewilderment. "'You?' he cried. "'Certainly, Mr. Grant.' "'Can you tell me,' said the mystic, with sunken head and lowering brow, as he traced a pattern in the dust with his sword-stick, "'Can you tell me what was the name of the man who lived in your house before you?' The unhappy Major was only faintly more disturbed by this last and futile irrelevancy, and he answered vaguely, "'Yes, I think so. A, a man named Gurney something. A, a name with a hyphen. Gurney Brown, that was it.' "'And when did the house change hands?' said Basil, looking up sharply. His strange eyes were burning brilliantly. "'I came in last month,' said the Major. And at the mere word, the criminal Northover suddenly fell into his great office chair and shouted with a volleying laughter, "'Oh, it's too perfect! It's too exquisite!' he gasped, beating the arms with his fists. He was laughing deafeningly. Basil Grant was laughing voicelessly, and the rest of us only felt that our heads were like weathercocks in a whirlwind. "'Confound it, Basil,' said Rupert, stamping. "'If you don't want me to go mad and blow your metaphysical brains out, tell me what all this means.' Northover rose. "'Permit me, sir, to explain,' he said. "'And first of all, permit me to apologise to you, Major Brown, for a most abominable and unpardonable blunder, which has caused you menace and inconvenience, in which, if you will allow me to say so, you have behaved with astonishing courage and dignity. Of course you need not trouble about the bill. We will stand the loss.' And tearing the paper across, he flung the halves into the waste-paper basket and bowed. Poor Brown's face was still a picture of distraction. "'But I don't even begin to understand,' he cried. "'What bill? What blunder? What loss?' Mr. P. G. Northover advanced in the centre of the room, thoughtfully, and with a great deal of unconscious dignity. On closer consideration there were apparent about him other things beside a screwed moustache, especially a lean, sallow face, hawk-like, and not without a careworn intelligence. Then he looked up abruptly. "'Do you know where you are, Major?' he said. "'God knows I don't,' said the warrior, with fervour. "'You are standing,' replied Northover, "'in the office of the Adventure and Romance Agency Limited.' "'And what's that?' blankly inquired Brown. The man of business leaned over the back of the chair and fixed his dark eyes on the other's face. "'Major,' 
said he, did you ever, as you walked along the empty street upon some idle afternoon, feel the utter hunger for something to happen, something, in the splendid words of Walt Whitman, something pernicious and dread, something far removed from a puny and pious life, something unproved, something in a trance, something loosed from its anchorage and driving free. Did you ever feel that? Certainly not, said the Major shortly. Then I must explain with more elaboration, said Mr. Northover, with a sigh. The Adventure and Romance Society has been started to meet a great modern desire. On every side, in conversation and in literature, we hear of the desire for a larger theatre of events, for something to weigh layers and lead us splendidly astray. Now the man who feels this desire for a varied life pays a yearly or a quarterly sum to the Adventure and Romance Agency. In return, the Adventure and Romance Agency undertakes to surround him with startling and weird events. As a man is leaving his front door, an excited sweep approaches him and assures him of a plot against his life. He gets into a cab and is driven to an opium den. He receives a mysterious telegram or a dramatic visit and is immediately in a vortex of incidents. A very picturesque and moving story is first written by one of the staff of distinguished novelists who are at present hard at work in the adjoining room. Yours, Major Brown, designed by our Mr. Grigsby, I consider particularly forcible and pointed. It is almost a pity that you did not see the end of it. I need scarcely explain further the monstrous mistake. Your predecessor in your present house, Mr. Gurney Brown, was a subscriber to our agency, and our foolish clerks, ignoring alike the dignity of the hyphen and the glory of military rank, positively imagined that Major Brown and Mr. Gurney Brown were the same person. Uh, thus you were suddenly hurled into the middle of another man's story. How on earth does the thing work said rupert grant with bright and fascinated eyes we believe we are doing a noble work said northover warmly it has continually struck us that there is no element in modern life that is more lamentable than the fact that the modern man has to seek all artistic existence in a sedentary state if he wishes to float into fairyland he reads a book if he wishes to dash into the thick of battle, he reads a book. If he wishes to soar into heaven, he reads a book. If he wishes to slide down the banisters, he reads a book. We give him these visions, but we give him exercise at the same time. The necessity of leaping from wall to wall, of fighting strange gentlemen, of running down long streets from pursuers, all healthy and pleasant exercise. We give him a glimpse of that great morning world of Robin Hood or the Knights Errant when one great game was played under the splendid sky. We give him back his childhood, that godlike time when we can act stories, be our own heroes, and at the same instant dance and dream. Basil gazed at him curiously. The most singular psychological discovery had been reserved to the end, for as the little businessman ceased speaking he had the blazing eyes of a fanatic. 
Major Brown received the explanation with complete simplicity and good humour. Uh, "'Of course. Awfully dense, sir,' he said. Uh, "'No doubt at all. The scheme excellent. Uh, but I don't think—' He paused for a moment and looked dreamily out of the window. "'I don't think you will find me in it. Uh, somehow when one's seen—seen uh, the thing itself, you know, blood and men screaming, one feels about having a little house and a little hobby. In the Bible, you know, there remaineth a rest.' Northover bowed, then after a pause he said, "'Gentlemen, may I offer you my card? If any of the rest of you desire at any time to communicate with me, despite Major Brown's view of the matter—' "'I should be obliged for your card, sir,' said the Major, in his abrupt but courteous voice. "'Pay for chair.' The agent of romance and adventure handed his card, laughing. It ran— P. G. Northover, B. A. C. Q. T. Adventure and Romance Agency, 14 Tanners Court, Fleet Street. "'What on earth is C. Q. T?' asked Rupert Grant, looking over the Major's shoulder. "'Don't you know?' returned Northover. "'Haven't you ever heard of the Club of Queer Trades?' "'There seems to be a confounded lot of funny things we haven't heard of,' said the Major reflectively. "'What's this one?' The Club of Queer Trades is a society consisting exclusively of people who have invented some new and curious way of making money. I was one of the earliest members. You deserve to be, said Basil, taking up his great white hat with a smile, and speaking for the first time that evening. When they passed out, the adventure and romance agent wore a queer smile, as he trod down the fire and locked up his desk. A fine chap, that major. When one hasn't a touch of the poet, one stands some chance of being a poem. But to think of such a clockwork little creature of all people getting into the nets of one of Grigsby's tales! And he laughed out loud in the silence. Just as the laugh echoed away, there came a sharp knock at the door. An owlish head with dark moustaches was thrust in, with deprecating and somewhat absurd inquiry. "'What, back again, Major?' cried Northover in surprise. "'What can I do for you?' The Major shuffled feverishly into the room. "'It's horribly absurd,' he said. "'Something must have got started in me that I never knew before, and upon my soul I feel the most desperate desire to know the end of it all.' "'The end of it all?' "'Yes,' said the Major. "'Jackals, and the title deeds, and death to the Major.' The agent's face grew grave, but his eyes were amused. "'I'm terribly sorry, Major,' said he, "'but what you ask is impossible. I don't know anyone I would sooner oblige than you, but the rules of the agency are strict. The adventures are confidential. You are an outsider. I am not allowed to let you know an inch more than I can help. I do hope you understand.' "'There is no one.' said Brown, who understands discipline better than I do. Thank you very much. Good night. And the little man withdrew for the last time. He married Miss Jameson, the lady with the red hair and the green garments. She was an actress employed, with many others, by the romance agency, and her marriage with the prim old veteran caused some stir in her languid and intellectualized set. She always replied very quietly that she had met scores of men who acted splendidly in the charades provided for them by Northover, 
but that she had only met one man who went down into a coal cellar when he really thought it contained a murderer. The major and she are living as happily as birds in an absurd villa, and the former has taken to smoking. Otherwise he is unchanged, except perhaps there are moments when, alert and full of feminine unselfishness as the major is by nature, he falls into a trance of abstraction. Then his wife recognises with a concealed smile, by the blind look in his blue eyes, that he is wondering what were the title deeds, and why he was not allowed to mention jackals. But, like so many old soldiers, Brown is religious, and believes that he will realise the rest of those purple adventures in a better world. End of Part 1 The Tremendous Adventures of Major Brown